Welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. As this episode was recorded in the Sydney CBD, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. In this episode, we caught up with the gentleman designer himself, John Hicks. John is a graphic designer and illustrator, but has worked across a broad spectrum of mediums in his career. Most of us will be familiar with John's work, whether it being with the first Firefox logo or Spotify's icons or ANZ customers in Australia will recognise his icons and their applications. Having worked with John many times over the years, I can honestly say he's one of the best in the world at what he does, so I was incredibly happy to have him on the show. Also joining in in the conversation was principal designer at Intuit, Amon Brack, who is a brand expert and is helping reshape the brand identity for Intuit, both in Australia and in the US. So I was sandwiched between icon and brand gurus in this episode. We discussed the differences and similarities between icon and brand, the governance of both, the importance of context and design, and much, much more. So let's jump straight into the call. John Hicks, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Hi there. Great, and delighted to have you here. Whereabouts are you coming from today? Uh, so I'm speaking from Whitney in Oxfordshire. So if you come out of London and go west a little bit, probably about an hour and a half in a car, then you'll get to Whitney, which is this little little town where I'm living at the moment. Is it north of Bristol, isn't it? Yeah, so north of Bristol, west of London, east of Ireland. Um. <laughs> we, we get it. <laughs> Just east of Wales as well. So John, um, thanks for joining us today. I'm also here with Aman Brack, who's the principal visual designer at Intuit Australia. Aman, delighted to have you here as well. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. John, let's kick off a little bit. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got into design. Well, I've just been working it out, actually, how long I've been doing this. So I've been freelance now for 16 years, and I've actually been working as a designer now for 24 years, uh, which is slightly frightening. But um, basically, art was the only other thing I was ever any good at at school. So I decided that was the thing to do, to pursue that. But I actually trained as an illustrator. So uh, my big plan was that I was going to be a wildlife illustrator. So I did five years training at college to do this came out of college and found out that there is no market for wildlife illustrators in the uk at all they've got three and that was all they needed (laughs) so (laughs) there was literally no work so one of the options that people had were if you were good at doing horses you could do um bookmakers you know um what would you call them in australia Turf accountants or... Turf accountants is what they say, yeah. Yeah, they're sort of gambling places. They're big, big horse pictures. So instead of doing that, I basically got a job as a junior designer and kind of almost learnt on the job. There was a certain amount of design that was taught as part of illustration, but uh, I'd started off basically learning print design and then as I went up and up, you know, just working through and learning digital myself. And evolved from there. Now we've obviously, we've worked together... A number of times um, over the last, I don't know, five, six years probably. Yeah. And I guess, you, you know, you're, you're known for iconography. Um, that's why I reached out to you originally. And, you know, tell us a little bit about your iconography past. Well, I don't know if this is kind of coming back from the illustration background, but um, it kind of took off a little bit when I did some little application icons for Camino, uh, a Mac browser that was based on Firefox which then led to doing the Firefox logo. 
and then led to doing general application icons. But the thing that I've become known for now is more the kind of pictograms, you maybe call them, or ideograms. And that's just kind of it's something I've learned myself and really enjoy doing because I enjoy taking something and reducing it and reducing it as simple as possible. And it's a weird thing to get a sort of kick out of, but I think I've also kind of found a little niche in that sense. Yeah, the reductive process of designing icons. Yeah. I was just going to add, uh, I noticed that absolutely everyone's done a lot of work with iconography in digital, but have you ever applied your iconography skills to something out of world, like let's say wayfinding or anything like that? Uh, no, I haven't. And there's a job I'm hoping to sort of get at the moment where that could happen, but it's sort of waiting to sort of hear. You speak to a lot of clients generally and everyone sounds very enthusiastic and then you could wait, you know, do I chase, to which point do I sort of like say, is this still happening, you know? Um, so, yeah. I'm probably guilty of that as well for you. No, 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 the projects with Jerry have actually been really great. So, Steady on, John. Um, yeah. <laughs> Give me digs already. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, but you know, I'd, I'd love to do that as well. And certainly beyond sort of application screens and things, um, you see a lot of iconography in games, for example, that, you know, have you ever played uh, Portal? Absolutely love Portal, yeah. Yeah, because they're, they're really humorous, the, the pictograms you get throughout the, the game in Portal. Yeah, and somewhat violent, but I, I absolutely love them. But uh, yeah, games, <laughs> yes. are, games are a really interesting thing. Like, I, I always take this opportunity to say this, but like, they always explain such like complex systems in an environment that no one's ever seen before to someone who's approaching it for the first time. And they kind of get you through there in a really tangible way. Like it's, I've always loved the way games have sort of approached learning and, and understanding a new environment. I think iconography is a big part of that. Oh, well, I, for me, I kind of always thought of it as being quite a small part of it. You know, that if you are, you know, a group of people working on a game, the guy doing the icons is kind of like the, one of the least important, you know. <laughs> but no, I enjoy it. And I, I enjoy when I play games looking out for these kind of things and um, try to collect them. Yeah, Absolutely. So today's topic, John, we were speaking, you know, over the last couple of months, it was the differences between brand and iconography. So tell us a little bit about where this idea or problem originated. Well, I mean, basically, that's kind of my main focus of work is that I'm either doing iconography for clients, or I'm either doing identities, particularly logos. So there's a lot of crossover in the middle of these, like a big Venn diagram of you know, the similarities and also very big differences too. And I just thought that these were two good subjects because A, it's what I generally do. And particularly on the iconography side, that's something that I've been speaking about at conferences now for, for quite a few years. So, yeah. you know, it's something I've actually, I think generally when you speak at conferences, you, I always want to have a subject that I'm, that I feel qualified to talk about. Yeah. And, icons are found is that one thing I can talk about you know <laughs> I think after 15 16 years of doing uh, a lot of that high level work you're, you're able to talk about iconography now John yeah <laughs> but yeah so I enjoy those both those processes as well all right so what, what was the problem like with I guess it was the understanding from the client's perspective of what brand was and what iconography was what were they asking you to do that kind of made you think like actually there's something in, in this there's a problem well there. I mean I tend to find that clients, when it came to doing logos and identities, that clients generally sort of know what they want. And they certainly, they didn't have any sort of misconceptions as such. But particularly with icon design, what I really found was companies who find out that there's an icon designer working on, on a project, and they start building up this list of all the things they want as icons. 
and it becomes like a clip art exercise. No one's actually sort of sat down and thought about context and about where these are going, whether they actually need to be an icon, whether actually, you know, if these were all used in the right context, whether basically the page just becomes a big sort of Christmas tree of all these different little pictures. <laughs> um, so that's that's the one thing I found with some clients, not necessarily with the clients that I'm directly dealing with, but with others in that company, to try and get them through the process of, do you need an icon for this? And sometimes it can be quite, really quite esoteric things that they want to be as an icon. Um, I want to order shoes with this particular height of heel. And you think, well, you know, there's a lot of things that are just better done as text. And that was one of those sort of cases. So that's what I found generally. You know, there's not, in terms of working with clients, it's that going through that process. Do you have any hard and fast rules around what you would and wouldn't call an icon? Well, I've actually done this for a, a, a company just recently. They hired me not to actually design icons, but to come up with a principles document for them to use internally. And I did it as this big, long flowchart. So that basically it takes you right from the very top. So you've got your brief, your icon brief, say in this case, you know, like maybe it's a view icon or something. And how you work through that. So you're going through sort of stages, like first of all, looking at the context. Is it clearer with text? Uh, Is it clearer without the icon and just text? And all these sort of questions. So the top of this flowchart takes you through these questions. So considering things like the context, I think, is the, the most important. Is the thing you're trying to convey too complex to use as an icon? Generally, you know, icons work best when it's something familiar. So even if it's a new concept that you're you're creating rather than sort of an existing convention like a like a home icon for example you you can still create a new icon for something but the thing that helps you is having that familiar object something that's recognizable really and it's possible to to render small and simple a lot of concepts aren't you know or objects you know either they don't fill the the square boundary space that you've got for an icon very well and end up with a lot of white space, or you get something that can actually look like something else, or you know you've got problems with localization. So I did some work for ANZ Bank a few years ago, which is ANZ as we say in Australia. Oh right, you do say Z. Yeah. Oh, good on you. <laughs> I just assume that everyone outside of the UK just says Z. You know, like you know, like my favourite band ZZ Top. Anyway. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, for example, I was doing an icon for them that was savings. So while a piggy bank is actually still a recognized metaphor for savings, uh, for some of the audiences that that was going to, there's the whole problem of a pig being a dirty animal and, and not having that same meaning. So there's lots of different reasons why you shouldn't use an icon. So we always go through that process first. How do you find out those differences? Like, how did you find out about the, the pig being a dirty animal and not being appropriate? Well, there's some that you know already. So like general knowledge stuff, like the owl is always the best example, actually, because it's, you know, in the West, it's very much a symbol of wisdom or knowledge. And in the East, it's the symbol of stupidity. Wow. It's the absolute polar opposite of, <laughs> of what your intention is. So what it really comes down to is that's where the client usually has that kind of local knowledge. There's another good example was Skype. Uh, there's a Skype emoticon called Bow. 
which is very important for the Asian market. And it was a simple thing of basically someone bowing with hands by their sides or bowing with their arms crossed. Now, normally when I th- in the West, when you think of someone bowing, it's arms by the sides. But apparently that actually means in the East, especially Japan, uh, I want to die. You know, it's like it's like being hung. You know, that kind of the, yeah. the image of someone being so for the warmth and sincerity, it's got to have the hands crossed in front. Now, that's not general knowledge. That's not something I knew before that project. But the client has people in those those, those cultures who can advise and warn you of these sort of things. Yeah, ethnography thinking and approaches to design. Mm. I mean, I find it really fascinating the way that, like the owl, things can be polar opposites. And the design that you're working on may only need to work in a certain audience and therefore that's not a problem. But it might mean that you have to have two icons depending on which audience you're you're aiming for. So Okay, great. John, tell us what your thoughts are around the differences between brand and iconography. Well, with them um, when you're designing a logo or an identity, what you're doing is trying to create something that's ownable something that's unique to that client, something that can only be recognised as being that company and no one else. So it's really the uniqueness that's the important factor. Whereas with an icon, you're best not doing something unique. So, for example, going back to uh, a bland example, the home button. You know, if you wanted to go put some uh, icons in navigation to go home, then this works best with the home that everyone recognises, the very simple house shape mm-hmm. uh, with a pitch roof, you know, and not trying to be esoteric about it and doing, you know, like a mansion or... Or a tent. Um, or, or a, yeah, or like a welcome mat or something, you know, not trying to think creatively around the thing and say, well, everyone does a house, let's do something different. Yeah. That's not what the icon's is for. The icon's there, you know, it's for wayfinding and it's... It's something that's got to be recognised in such a split second and then help that person navigate or get feedback or find the right function or category. Um, so that's where the sort of polar opposites with, with logos and icons. You know, you've got one on the one side, something that's got to be unique and, and different. On the other side, something that works best when it's not. Do you find that um, if you're creating stuff that needs to be so instantly recognisable, do you find going from client to client that some of this stuff can feel the same, like from home icon to home icon or view icon to view icon? Sure, yeah. I, I think in the last project I joked with Jerry about the menu icon is the most expensive one to do, you yeah. know, because it just takes a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of, you know, precision in that. Yeah, I mean, there's like the standard ones that in every set. So the, the menu icon is a good example, but also people need like a, a simplified sort of Twitter and Facebook, you know, sort of social sharing icons, and as well as basic things like arrows and navigation. So that's always going to be the case. And, you know, obviously those are all very, very simple ones that you just create as part of a set. But that's the thing. It's, it, you've not got to look at it as trying to do something different each time. You know, these are functional and they've got to be, treated in that way that you know you're not trying to be creative not in that sense anyway i think there's a a definite sort of breadth of owning a style with icons so i think for example airbnb i think have a very good brand style that you recognize as being airbnb there's a little bit of flexibility there to make them your own but at the same time yes yeah with every project you're always going to be doing these same basic icons again and again so if you imagine that the branding kind of evolves over the the course of time 
how important is it to update your iconography to reflect the brand values that you might have designed? Yeah, well, one of the things is that it's happened with some previous clients where what they've done is not uh, created any kind of icon style guide. So I've come in and done an initial set of icons, which is quite, you know, reasonable, you know, as they've just needed like one or two extras. They said, oh, well, you know, we'll just do that in-house and we'll add to the set as we go. But you can see that the more and more it gets added to by various designers over time, you know, you, that has that lack of uh, holistic style. Yeah, it degrades. Yeah, and I think actually it's something that obviously branding's had for a long time. And we're starting to sort of see the buzzwords of design systems for things like UX, um, product design. But it's now starting to be something that clients are asking me for rather than me suggesting to them. Yeah. So, you know, they're wanting an icon style guide. Like you do with branding, you know, like a do's and don'ts. You know, what are the best practices? What are the, what's the style? You know, what makes it an icon for this brand and what doesn't? And again, like the brand documents, it's got to be evolving. It's got to always be updated because companies change focus or shift products or or add more products, and you know it becomes more of a more of a family to think about. And you know, do you differentiate? Do you try and make it all feel the same? So yeah, there's definitely an element, a need for for updating. In some ways, there's kind of obviously very simple icons like the menu ones where, you know, that's not going to matter. But um, the icons being used for other things like, you know, for calling out features or for highlighting things or functions that are very useful. Like for Spotify, there's very basic ones for things like play and pause. Mm. There's not a lot of, you know, design sort of thinking involved in that. But then when it gets to things like these larger icons you get for each category. So for, you know, if you're looking for a reggae playlist, you know, having this sort of larger icon for each of those. Yeah, a Rastafarian. Well, yeah, <laughs> I ended up going with a lion. <laughs> really, for that one? Yeah, this, this it was just why? Why? Tell us about that. It was very hard. I mean, there was one. For a while, I was able to do differentiate a lot of music by the instrument. But then there was things like soul music where, you know, there's no kind of like obvious instrument other than the actual like singer maybe. Yeah. So in that sense, I did portray the singer for that one. So how did you come or how did you land on the lion for reggae music? Ah, that's the whole Rastafarian religion. You know, it's ah. the Lion of Judah. It's there. It's a sort of religious symbol. Interesting. Which kind of got around a lot of problems because you couldn't show... Bob Marley. Trying to depict someone, it was going to be a little bit dodgy and a bit... Yeah, licensing uh, could be, could be, and branding. Yeah, and, and could also could be quite racist or, you know, unintentionally, but it could be a little bit too stereotyped. Where, whereas a lot of, you know, reggae album covers actually sort of use that kind of imagery. So, But again, that's probably another good point to make about icons is the fact that those sort of icons aren't there to work by themselves they're not there without a text label. So they're not things like play and pause, which are symbols that you've learnt over the years and don't need a text. And actually that's another good thing about icons is the fact that, you know, you don't have to spell these things out and have problems with localizations. The fact that, you know, you have to, like, especially if you translate into German, you know, it's always going to be at least four times longer than the, you know, whatever language you're working in. (laughs) So icons are great for getting around that kind of problem. But at the same time, most icons need a text label or something with it to give it context. 
Absolutely. The contextual placement of these things is, is huge. I remember years ago when we first worked together, we were working on a project for Cochlear. Yeah. And I remember one of the senior stakeholders wanted to test the icons on the wall and seeing if people understood you know, if, if they made sense on their own. Ah, right. Just the icon by itself. Just the, and I was like, whoa, that's not really fair. Like, you know, that's, <laughs> it's, it's the context and it's the situation and it's also what comes before on the journey of understanding. It's not just an isolated, like, you know, yes or no binary to this pass and fail. Yeah, yeah. So what, what advice would you give to designers who specialize in visual design or, or iconography design who have to tackle that problem? Because I'm sure I wasn't the first person. I won't be the last person to have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things, I mean, you know this every time I work with you, that one of the questions I always ask is, where's the context? So <laughs> clients will give you a, a long list of, like, names of the functions, or sometimes it's just names of the object, like, you know, a picture of a house or a picture of a pencil or something. Yeah. So the next question I always ask, you know, is, is what's the context? So I get them to send me screenshots of the UI where this is going to live. Yeah. And... There's something to be said for sort of testing things out of context, you know, in the sense that, you know, if someone can understand it without the context, then then great, you know, it's going to be recognisable. And I think that kind of works for things like pictograms, where mm. you actually got a, a picture of something. But I think a good example of, of context and how it changes is if you think of something as simple as an X. So an X could mean close, it could mean delete, it could mean clear a form field, or if it's at the end of a text, it could mean a kiss. You know, so it's depending on where that symbol is placed, it could mean any number of things. So yeah, that kind of situation of, of testing against a wall, it doesn't really work. It's always the context changes what you're looking at and enforces the meaning and, and aids it. I say the, the only really exceptions to that are the ones that are learnt, the play and pause icons that that don't need labels, that you know, you your muscle memory just learned over the years to accept it. And I think to this extent the menu icon is, is becoming that. Although actually a, a couple of years ago I saw um a friend was trying to, to coach their mum through this online process and was saying, Well, can you see the icons? Can you see the video icon and the microphone icon? And they said, no, but I can see an icon of a hot water bottle and a dentist chair. <laughs> and so when you looked at the icons, you think, ah, yeah, they totally could be. <laughs> so uh, context is important, but there's also, the, again, that element of, you know, you can't always expect everyone to understand it, even if you, you know, you think, oh, I've seen this menu icon everywhere. You know, it's surely everyone by now understands what this means. Yeah, that's right. And then like I, I, every single morning, it's such an interesting topic about context because every single morning I, I start my day and I hop on brand new or under consideration if you're familiar with that oh, side. Oh, yeah, about, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, like brands that go out and they've done a massive refresh about something. And you go down to the comments and it's hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of people like either really passionate or absolutely disgusted by a brand update or rebrand or anything or a couple of serifs taken off a logo. When it comes down to it, like this is the only place you're ever going to see a logo like that in like isolation. 
it's really interesting because like a, a brand is, is such a living, breathing thing and it exists in so many different places at so many different times. It can be posters on walls, it can be logos on websites, it can be the way that it sounds and the way that it talks. It can be what other people say about that brand, like that brand isn't even present. Yeah. Um, and you have like hundreds of people like getting fired up over the, the shade of green on the Spotify logo. <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's a great read because when you read the article, it's always a very well-considered analysis of, especially of redesigns, you know, what they had before, you know, and why this is either better or worse. And it's a great bit of design analysis. But as you say, you then get down to the comments. And, yeah, you know, which is a sewer. Um, uh, we all know yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and Twitter's like that with every kind of logo <laughs> refresh. Maybe your feed, but not my feed. My, my feed is <laughs> daisy clean. Ah, oh, good. <laughs> No, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently because usually, like, for example, Instagram, when they change their logo, you know, the Twitter explodes for a few days with people saying, you know, how crap this is or like the Spotify green is the wrong green. And, you know, and then after a while, people just don't care, you know. But I'm working on a big project at the moment, which is a big rebrand of a big logo and well-known logo. And all the time in my head, I'm just thinking of all the kind of Twitter comments or under consideration <laughs> and comments about, you know, what happened to this, you know. Yeah, this tsunami of hate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's if the ideas get picked, you know. It's kind of, that's a long way down the line, but, um, you know, it's always in the back of your head. True. John, one of the questions there that came on my mind when you were talking earlier, especially around the sort of consideration of icons being judged against a wall, and I've definitely faced that over the years is the ownership of iconography and branding. Like branding tends to be owned by maybe a specific department and the iconography tends to be owned by the product design, sometimes the UX and sometimes the UI. It's, it's sort of like a shared, a shared world. What are your thoughts on who should own iconography? And is it maybe a branding piece or is it should the whole lot just be owned by product? What are your thoughts? Well, I, in some ways, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. Because like marketing often control the brand side and like your product team controls the, the icons. I think uh, because icons are functional, they sit well within the product teams, within the UX teams. There's always that sort of slight crossover with brand. And I mean, the, the project that we just did recently was, was like that in that we try to you know, include as much of that brand style as possible with the icons. So there needs to be that kind of you know, conversation between the two teams, but I definitely think it's something that should be owned by the product team or by someone completely separate from the two. Another company I was working with just recently uh, that I was doing the big principles document for is definitely a case of that. You know, they've got so many people, because it's not just interfaces, They've got interfaces on products, on applications and websites, but also on uh, retail packaging and other sources like this and actually printed onto hardware as well. And it was really interesting sort of going through and talking to them about how they actually print onto different materials and the way that that affects things. So like if you're laser etching onto metal, there's a, only so dark you can go before the edges start to burn and you lose the crispness and that kind of thing. So, you know, it can cross a lot of disciplines with a lot of companies. So in that sense, I think if you can get someone separate, then that's ideal. But for generally, you know, when we're talking about things like apps, websites, certainly sitting in the product team is definitely a good idea. Yeah, and um, the, the branding side of that's also really interesting, like especially at Intuit, it's, it's actually moved around a couple of times. So 
I mean, this idea of a brand department or who owns brand has kind of moved from department to department, which from my perspective is, is a really weird way to sort of approach stuff. We would do this thing called brand training that uh, we've kind of kicked off in Australia where every three months we get every single new starter in the company and we kind of drive into them that the brand is owned by absolutely everybody. Like regardless of the fact that, you know, there might be a brand department and the brand department does this, it matters like let's say if you work for Intuit and you go out on the weekend and you go out and you start a fight or something like that and people know that you work for Intuit, like that negatively is going to go impact the <laughs> no, brand, right? exactly. Like, and and it, it's every single person is 100% responsible for it. It's like uh, the care team and then like the sales team and the way they approach their customers and the way they talk and the way they sound just as much as, you know, using the correct logo or the correct color. And presumably, obviously, with the larger the company, the more difficult that becomes. You know, if you've got a small startup, then... With, you know, with a small startup, it's much easier to control and have that conversation between everyone. But is that how you do it in Intuit? You know, the, is it very much enforced that everyone understands how the brand affects them, even if they're you know they're not a designer? Yeah, exactly, and that everyone is actually a custodian of it. So the brand isn't so much about what we say about it, but it's how other people engage with us. And people don't engage with us with just our logo. They don't engage with us with just our product. They engage with us on the phone. They engage with us in person. They engage with us at events. So the brand is this, it's kind of embodied in every single person, and we want to make sure that when people come on board that they know this. Yeah, people don't engage with a brand. They engage with a service. So, John, um, we're coming towards the end of this episode and I was just wondering if you had any key learnings or takeaways that you have for people who are interested in iconography to maybe continue their learning. Where, where should they go? And Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is, is just like, you know, using something like Pinterest or your own photo album and just collecting a lot of iconography. I think we were, we were talking at the start earlier about, you know, games. You know, that's one example. A friend of mine's quite obsessed with car dashboards and how, you know, the iconography that gets used there and has been thinking about writing a blog about this. But I think the first stage is just sort of collecting all these different examples for real life user interfaces, gaming, what, as many different sort of sources as possible. And also some great um, icon designers. Like, for example, if you go to uh, iconwork.com, Stefan, uh, who I think is one of the... Uh, world's best icon designers, who does an incredible process. I think recently they did this tweet about a Bluetooth headset icon and how many different versions you go through to um, to get it exactly right. And it was great. It was just like exactly how I work of just sort of, you know, doing multiple, multiple versions of something and then finding exactly the right one. So that, that that's the one thing is the research. The second thing is obviously keeping icons simple and considering the context. And the fourth thing is using conventions, which is the, the great thing. So again, what we were going back to earlier about logos and icons, logos working better if they're unique and icons working better when they're not, you know. So use things like, uh, for example, there's a site called thenounproject.com or just a Google image search. Look and see what other people are doing for that icon. You may find there's one metaphor that everyone uses. In some instances, you may find that there's a variance of, of different things. And then you might also find that there's actually nothing existing out there that's done for this. So in that sense, you've got to work out whether do it need to be icon? Can I do this in a way that's, that's familiar? And I usually use something like mind mapping there to, to come up with as many different options as possible and sort of test them out. 
But those those are my sort of four key bits, really. Great. Um, they were all brilliant, John. Um, I really like the, the mind mapping suggestion because I know from looking back at our time at Cochlear when we worked on those uh, icons together, we had some seriously complex metaphors to work with and they were definitely, yes. they required icons, like what to expect. And I can't remember most of them, but there was a load of them that we had to do. So yeah, they were great. So John, we've got three questions towards the end of this episode that we always ask our guests. And I'll start this one off by saying, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at and why? Um, I have to say animation because I love SVG. I do a lot of work with SVG and icons and illustrations. And recently I did the, some work for DuckDuckGo that was, oh, okay, yeah. uh, that was SVG illustrations. And I just did some very simple kind of little CIS animations for it. You know, little things like blinking, soap bubbles that were floating away. It's a very sort of basic level of animation. That's something that I would really like to do, but it's having the time to sit down and, and do it properly and learn it, which at the moment, that kind of spare time doesn't really happen. But it's definitely a, a skill I wish I, I was able to to offer to clients rather than just something that I was, you know, sort of dabbling with occasionally. Okay, great. Um, and did you want to um, add something to that? Yeah, I mean, that's just really interesting because motion is, is on my table as well. And as this gap between like Adobe After Effects and, you know, let's say SVG animation closes, you can start to do more and more stuff in motion in web. And then, you know, the possibilities are absolutely endless. Yeah. And I think also, you know, if you look at something like Dribble, you know, most illustrators coming up now, younger illustrators have got those skills as well. You know, they're learning animation at the same time as illustration. And, you know, I think it's definitely just makes their skill set a lot stronger. Yeah, absolutely. So second question, John, um, what is the one thing that you wish you'd be able to banish from the industry? Um, I I think there's a, I've tried to come up with a name for this. I've called it a one size fits all mentality. And I think there's this, this way that people like to sort of pin you down and say, this is the one way to do something. So if you're building a website, for example, you'll have someone say that, you know, you've got to use React now, or you've got to use Vue, or there's some thing you've got to do, like you've got to do flat design, and you've got to avoid skeuomorphic design. There's a lot of people telling you what you should do, but I kind of, there's a brilliant post by Jeremy Keith where he uh, says the answer is always, it depends. You know, every project is different, every context is different, and you can't sort of be so dogmatic about all of these things. And I wish that, you know, that that's one aspect that, you know, I, I would like to see that, that, that go, you know, that you have to do things in a certain way or, you know, you can have you know, even just like a static website, you know, absolutely. it is fine for people. So. Yeah, absolutely. Do you even know something you want to add to that, Aman? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so when it comes down to like, uh, banishing from the industry, it, it's a hard one, but um, brands that think too small, like I, I, I can't imagine the amount of times that someone has come up to me and said, hey, I've got this app idea that, you know, just transcribes audio or this this app idea that sends a message based on if this, then that or something along those lines. If you go back and look at like some of the biggest companies in the world and their missions, it's, you know, like Airbnb's mission is to have a flag at the UN because of the uh, the relationships that they formed and like the empathy that they've built in their customers about living at someone else's home has changed the world in a better way. I'd love to see more companies, more brands, even the small guys think about how a brand is going to grow into the future as opposed to like, you know, what's right for me right now. Mm. And actually that's a whole new podcast there, isn't it? We're talking about the difference between brand and logo and identity work. 
and you know how the brand is you know can almost be something and basically it's invisible you know it's not something as tangible as a logo yeah it's also the whole kind of like uh, the businesses of doing no harm uh, versus like doing some good um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which, which, which is what I always say to people when they kind of go, "Well, you know, we're not doing any harm." And I'm like, "Well, how about you do some good?" <laughs> yes, <laughs> fantastic. So, um, final question: What advice would you give to emerging design talent for the future? I would say, with the illustrator or designer, just keep practicing, do more of it. I think there's this with a lot of jobs you wouldn't want to do them in your spare time. But I find with design and illustration that it's, it is something I like to think about in my spare time. It's something I kind of find that I always want to think about. You know, so whether it's actually like you know practicing sketching or reading or or collecting ideas, like having a like a visual scrapbook or, so, or all these sorts of things. And a lot of emerging talent often worry about their portfolio and what they can show before they've got any sort of client work. And well, there's two answers to that, and I always say. First of all, make it up, you know, do the work that you want to be doing, you know, invent it. And also, while I disagree with spec work, I also suggest hooking up with local charities. So this is something I did when I was getting started, you know, trying to make the leap from an in-house designer to be a freelancer, as I did some free work for charities. So, um, you know, I got a real world brief and project and something to show in my portfolio at the end of it and the charity who couldn't afford anything got some design work and it was a, a good symbiotic relationship i mean like actually the, the firefox logo that was a, a volunteer project that was just a bit of almost a bit of fun really that we were just doing you know on our own yeah to sort of help this sort of what was you know basically a charity so wow. so yeah so don't do spec work but you know at the same time look out for these opportunities where if you, you're needing to build up a portfolio, there are ways to do it. Yeah, well, as Jeremy Keats says, it, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, John Hicks, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed speaking to you. And Aman, thank you so much for joining us as well. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, guys. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.